Thank you for that special music. Good morning, everyone. I confess I was a little slow getting out of bed this morning and feel like I've drank two gallons of coffee, but great to be here this morning. Honored to open up God's word. If you would, please stand for the reading of scripture. And while you are standing, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to use a pew Bible there in front of you, and you can find today's scripture reading on page 649. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, as we start a new series, uh, beginning to prepare our hearts for Easter time, which is quickly approaching. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19, reading through the end of the chapter, or verse 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that it is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come this morning. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your Savior, for your Son, Jesus, Lord, who's sitting at the right hand, as, as we just read, is our propitiation. Father, he's fighting for us. Lord, we praise you and thank you for that. Father, open our hearts, open our minds to your word today. Be with Pastor Chris as he brings the message. May you use him. May you speak through him. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be here this morning, and I hope you're expecting great things from God. We're starting a new series, Scandalous. Scandalous. Now, when you hear that word, what do you think of? What do you think of? Do you think of uh, a politician in Washington, D.C.? Do you think of an entertainer in Hollywood, maybe a couple decades ago, a TV evangelist or two? Scandalous. What do you think of? Well... We want you to think of the cross, the scandal of the cross. And even though Dane did not read this passage, but 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25 is kind of a good passage for you to kind of read, for you to read, for you to think on as we get into this series. Because the cross has always caused a scandal, and it always will. The cross has always caused a scandal. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, Paul, in Paul's day, he said, the cross was viewed as a stumbling block by the Jews and as foolishness by the Gentiles. The Jews were looking for political power from a Messiah that manifested himself in signs and wonders and would ultimately throw off the iron fist of Rome. And instead of a so-called king, who indeed performed many signs and wonders, instead he was crucified on a cross by Roman authorities, something that the Jewish leaders themselves asked the Roman authorities to do because all they saw in Jesus on the cross was weakness, and a refusal to do their bidding. 
The Gentiles were, were no better. They were looking for <coughs> excuse me, worldly wisdom that made sense from a human perspective, something that was clever, something that was, that was uh, smart, something hip, like any other man-made philosophies they loved to promote and they loved to arrogantly debate. And instead, this so-called king of the conquered Jews, who was indeed the very word and the very wisdom of God, spoke like a fool who lived to serve others to the point that he was willing to die a cross death, the humiliation of a, of a cross death, and yet claimed to be God's son and the heir of his kingdom. And yet all the Gentiles saw in Jesus on the cross was a fool that claimed to be all-powerful and yet was powerless to prevent his own crucifixion. You see, the, cry, the cross of Christ was a scandal to the world. And it's true today in our world. The cross is seen as a piece of jewelry, a tattoo to be, a tattoo to be inked on your body, a religious symbol to hang on a wall or to decorate a religious building. And for many, it still brings up the scandal of the Roman Catholic Crusades in the Middle Ages. And more and more, it's, it, 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 it breaks my heart to say this, but more and more today, even professing Christians view the cross as a scandal. It's becoming popular to deny the blood-shedding necessity of the cross. Some even view it as cosmic child abuse and, and just look at it as something to be rethought and denied as taught in the Bible. Yet, no matter how scandalous the cross may be, the cross will always be necessary. It will always be necessary. And to those who are called by God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, those who are called by God, both Jew and Gentile, the cross is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God, and so we preach Christ crucified and we glory in the cross. Amen? And so we join Paul in saying, may it never be, may it never be of any of us, may it never be of anyone in this pulpit, may it never be, that we would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so for the next, these four weeks leading up to Easter, we want to look at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see the glorious, life-saving scandal of the cross. And today we want to look at the necessity of the cross. Christopher Wright is a leading Bible student, scholar, theologian, says there's three basic questions that sum up the scandal of the cross and cause people to struggle with the idea of the cross. And these questions are, why was the cross necessary? How does the cross work to save us? And three, what did God actually accomplish on the cross. So what I want to do this morning from Romans 3, the passage that Dane read, I want to answer these three questions as the Bible answers them. And so let's take a look at that first question. Why is the cross necessary? Why is the cross necessary? Wasn't there another way? Why did God have to pour his wrath out on his son? Is it really cosmic child abuse? Or is it a great act of love to save sinners like us? Why is the cross necessary? I would put forth to you that there are three reasons why the cross is necessary from this passage. And the first reason is this. Our condition, our condition, we are helpless and hopeless sinners who cannot save ourselves. And the cross reminds us of that. This whole passage that Dane read for us, is saturated with courtroom terminology. Look at verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, every mouth may be shut. That pictures a defendant in a courtroom where he is the accused, she is the accused, 
And when they say, what do you have to say in your defense? They just shut their mouth because I'm guilty. And I don't have a leg to stand on. I don't have a word to say in my defense. And then he says, and all the world is accountable or guilty before God. This pictures that person, every person on the planet, the whole world, as accountable to God's just persecution. We are standing in the dock. God is the judge. We don't have a word to say in our defense. And we are guilty before him. And in light of our sin, that means we're helpless and hopeless before the glory of God's holiness and His righteous judgment of our sin. You see, what Paul is telling us, the reason he comes to this conclusion in verses 19 and 20 is because he spent the first three chapters in Romans establishing, first of all, that we are sinners internally. We are sinners internally. Sin is not just an external issue where if you try harder or you clean yourself up a little bit or you just kind of change some of your behavior, our sinful heart will go away. No, sin is an internal issue. Look at verses 9 through 18. He says, none of us understands what God requires. None of us seeks God from the core of our very being. None of us does good without it being tainted by sin. Our tongues reveal the filth that is in our hearts. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet run swiftly to sin because that's what we long to do. And our hearts, ultimately our hearts, have no fear of God and His wrath. You see, we are sinners internally and we are sinners individually. If you look at those verses... In verses 9 through 18, you see that none is mentioned four times and not even one is mentioned two times. There's not one exception. There's not one person on this planet that can stand before God's just judgment and say, you know what? I deserve to be saved by you. I I've earned, I've done enough good things for you to let me in to your heaven. There's not one. Because in this passage, Romans 3.23, it says clearly, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're sinners internally. We're sinners individually. We are sinners universally. This is true of everyone. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul establishes there's not one person here this morning, there's not one person on this planet, whether they're secular, religious, moral, it doesn't matter. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the cross is necessary to, because our condition as helpless and hopeless sinners is revealed in the cross. When we look at the cross for these next four weeks, we see God's estimation of our condition. And it's that we are hopeless and helpless. The penalty of our sin is ours. We've been declared guilty. The payment for our sins is ours. Is ours. We must pay our sin debt that we owe to a holy God. The punishment is ours. We deserve God's wrath poured out on us for all eternity. That's our condition, and that's why the cross is necessary. And this is driven home all the more when we see, number two, God's position. The cross is necessary because of God's position. He is the just judge who must condemn all sinners. Now, if there's one thing every human being wants is justice, at least for the other guy. You know, we want mercy for ourselves, justice for others. But the bottom line is, you can't see what's going on in this world and not cry out, where is the what? Justice. Where's the justice? And we do have a God who is just. Look again in verses 19 and 20. The judge that we stand before without a word in our defense the one who will prosecute us for our sin and render the verdict of guilty, the one who will execute the judgment of death, physical, spiritual, eternal, God himself is the judge. 
And as you read chapters 1 through 3 of Romans, you can hear God's gavel pounding out his justice and pouring out his wrath. In fact, in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, the wrath of God is mentioned. In fact, Paul began this entire, gospel, this entire book of Romans, this entire discussion of the gospel in verse, chapter 1, verse 18 with these words. Listen. For the wrath of God is revealed, presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, divine condemnation is inescapable. The wages of sin is death, and God's wrath already rests on every person born, every person that's been born, every person alive, and every person who will ever be born. So, verse 19, every mouth is closed. Shut me up. Every one of us, we don't have a word to say in our defense before this holy judge. And verse 19, all the world is guilty before him. And verse 20, another legal term, no flesh will be justified in his sight. What does that word Justify mean? It means no one will be declared right in his sight. No one will be declared not guilty. That's his position. The penalty is ours, the payment is ours, and the punishment is ours. We are guilty before God. But there's one other reason why the cross is necessary. It's not just our condition as hopeless and helpless sinners. It's not just... God's position as a holy and righteous judge. But there's a third reason the cross is necessary, and it's God's compassion. It's God's compassion. He is not only a just judge, he's a merciful deliverer, and aren't you glad he is? He is a merciful deliverer who wants to declare sinners right in his sight, who desires to become our loving, heavenly Father. Listen to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now I want you to see, I want you to think, do you see the tension of the cross? Our condition as sinners means we can do nothing to deliver ourselves. We can do nothing to justify ourselves before a holy God. We can't earn our way. We don't deserve his forgiveness. And we deserve to be on that cross. You see, God's position means as a just judge, he must judge us. He must judge everyone. The price must be paid. The, the punishment must be delivered. The penalty must be executed. But God is not only a just judge, but he's also a loving deliverer. So God's compassion desires to save us and to declare us right in his sight, even though we are such sinners. He wants to become our loving Heavenly Father. And yet we cannot save ourselves from our own bondage to sin, our own condemnation as sinners, our own judgment. Of our sin and so there's this tension this tension that is seen on the cross God must judge us in our sins yet desires to save us in spite of our sinful hearts do you see the need for the cross this morning do you see the absolute need to relieve this tension each one of us needs redemption we must pay the price to be set free from our sins. Each one of us needs a propitiation. That means we each must suffer the punishment for our sin. God's wrath must be satisfied. That's what propitiation means. It means the satisfaction of God's wrath. A just God must pour out his wrath. Each of us needs justification. We must be declared not guilty and be declared right in his sight in order to enter into his presence. The problem is, none of us are good enough to do that. 
And there's no one, remember none, not even one, who could do that. Only God can do this for us, even though he doesn't have to. But will he? Only God is the one who can do it. The question is, will he choose to do it? Will he choose to do what we need him to do for us? And the answer is, yes, through the cross. The cross is necessary to save sinners like us in the condition that we are before God in the position that he is. And yet in his compassion, there must be a way. And he has chosen to make that way. So number two, we've answered the first question, why is it necessary? Our condition, his position, and his compassion. How does the cross save sinners like us? That's the second question. How does the cross accomplish this? How does the cross save sinners like us? And the rest of the passage, from verses 21 through 31, the rest of the passage explains how the cross how God through the cross saves sinners like us. And the answer is God's provision. God has made the provision, but now the cross demonstrates that God is both just and the one who declares sinners right in his sight. God has provided what we need in light of our condition, in light of his position, and in light and out of a heart of compassion. God has made the provision, and that provision is the cross. The cross. Look at verse 21. I mean, chapters 1 through 3 are pretty bleak. You're saying, I sprung forward for this kind of bad news? Yes, because it's reality. Yes, because it's true to the Word of God. It's true to your own experience. This world is messed up. We are broken. None of us here are not broken. None of us here have a heart that is free from sin. And yet, as he comes down to verse 29, two of the most beautiful words in all the Bible, but now... But now God has provided out of his compassion and in keeping with his position as a just judge, God has made a way for sinners like us to be clear, declared right in his sight. Isn't that wonderful news? That is worth springing forward for, amen? But now, apart from the law, that means apart from anything we do, we don't have to measure up. And that's good news because we can't and we don't and we won't. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, that which God requires, that goodness, that holiness, that rightness with him is now a gift that he has made manifest. And guess where you see it? You see it on the cross. You see it on the cross. And so he says, but now, and all that follows from verse 21 on, all the way is the provision that he's made. And look at verse 26 in particular. Because remember, he says in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been revealed, it's been shown forth. But look at verse 26. For the demonstration, again, something's being revealed, something's being shown. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just, that means he's the judge that renders judgment, and yet also the justifier, the one who declares sinners righteous in his sight. Isn't that awesome? And so the cross is God's provision for him to be both just and justifier, to be both pour out his wrath and yet to give forgiveness and to change hearts. Boy, that is good news. Romans 5.8, again, says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, not by our works, not by our religiosity, not by our philosophy, but by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, how does God provide 
for our salvation on the cross. This past October was the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And uh, in the New Life class, we took some time to look at the five solas of the Reformation. And that entire series is on our website. So if you want to go into this in depth, you can download those, listen to those messages. But at the end of the day, in this passage, all five solas of the Reformation. Sola is the Latin word for alone, and that is how... God has saved us. So let's break this down and look at it. First of all, how does God provide for our salvation on the cross? By grace alone. Sola gratia. By grace alone. The source of our salvation is grace alone. Because verses 19 and 20 establish we don't have, a leg, we, we don't, we don't have anything to bring to the table. You know what we bring to our salvation? We bring our sin. That's what we bring. Here, God, here I am, full of sin. Here I am. And God brings his grace. He brings his grace. Notice, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is the grace of God that is apart from our works. God justifies by his grace alone. Look at verses 23 and 24 in your Bibles. Verses 23 and 24 have grace Grace, grace written all over them. Look at those verses. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, undeserving, undeserving of salvation, deserving of condemnation. Being justified, these sinners get to be declared right with God as a gift by His grace. Or some translations have freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Think about that. We are justified freely. This word for freely can be translated, as I said, gift, or it can be translated freely, and it means without cause. It means without cause. We have been justified freely because there is not a single cause in us for God to move toward us with grace, with salvation. So when God looks at us, there's not a single. He doesn't see anything in you or anything in me that is redemptive, that is deserving of salvation. Do you, do, you, do you realize that? See, the problem, we don't appreciate God's grace because we don't understand how sinful we are. And until we grasp how sinful we are, how holy He is, we don't appreciate the fact that He has initiated a means by which a sinner like me can be declared right, righteous in His sight. That's just amazing. That's why it's called amazing grace, by the way. We are justified freely without cause. This word freely can also mean without cost, without payment. Here's the good news. He gives us a gift and he doesn't make you pay for it. Because we don't, we're, we're, we're spiritual beggars. We don't have anything to give to God. We don't have anything that he needs. Because everything we have, he already owns. And so he justifies us with no strings attached in the sense of we don't have to pay. We, now, is salvation costly? Oh, yeah, it costs the Father, his only begotten Son. It costs the Son eternal wrath upon that cross. It's very costly, but to us, it's a free gift. It's a free gift. And we are justified freely by his grace. What's grace mean there? Grace means God took the initiative. If God didn't send his son, if Jesus didn't willingly, voluntarily come, if the cross was not in God's plan, we would be without hope. He initiated. We are saved by grace alone. One of the reformers, Thomas Cranmer, a reformer from England said this in a sermon on salvation, No man can by his own deeds be justified and made righteous before God. But every man of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness or justification that is received at God's own hand. It's a gift that he gives. Now, how does he give it? How does he give grace to undeserving sinners? Number two, in Christ alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, solus Christus, in Christ alone. Look at verse 22 again. Look at verse 22. 
God has manifested his righteousness, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in who? In Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. It is in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in who? Christ Jesus. You see, grace is a gift, but it's given in Christ alone. God saves by grace alone in Christ alone. And in verses 24 and 25, there's three key words that tell us the cross is necessary and it was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Look, at, first of all, in verse 24, the word redemption. Redemption means... It's the price that is paid to set a slave free. And the cross is necessary for our redemption. Why? Because we owe an infinite debt to God that we cannot pay as sinners to be set free. But Jesus paid the infinite debt he did not owe. Isn't that beautiful? We owed a debt we could not pay, and he paid a debt he did not owe. That's grace. But it had to be paid. On the cross, Jesus paid the price to set us free from the bondage of sin. That's redemption. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Oh, man. And the second word is propitiation. Not something you use on an everyday basis, but you ought to thank God for it every day. Verse 25, propitiation means, again, when I see propitiation in the Bible, I always think satisfaction of God's wrath. So think satisfaction. It's a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And we needed propitiation because we deserve the eternal punishment. But Jesus suffered the eternal punishment he did not deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. Jesus took the wrath of God and absorbed it into himself. On the cross, Jesus suffered the punishment we deserved. That's propitiation. And the third word that makes the cross necessary that Jesus fulfilled for us is justification. Again, in verse 24 and actually throughout this passage. Justification, again, is a judge's declaration that we are right. We have kept the law perfectly. We are right in God's sight, and we are good, as good as God is, and we can enter into his presence. Well, we stand condemned before God, but Jesus hung in our place. Jesus hung in our place on that cross. On the cross, he received the penalty, the condemnation that you and I deserve. He took on the eternal wrath. And let me say very quickly, I'll address this again in a moment. You say, how can, how can someone, a man hanging on a cross for six hours, satisfy the eternal wrath of God for all of humanity? And the answer is, it wasn't just a man, he was also God. And so God, in the mystery of his redemption and atonement, provided a God-man that in six hours on that cross, especially the three hours where the Father forsook and turned his face and the creation grew dark, the eternal wrath of God was poured out on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and his wrath was satisfied so that you and I can be declared right in his sight. None of this is possible apart from what Christ alone did on the cross. You eliminate the cross, you've eliminated your redemption, you have put at risk your propitiation, and you have lost your justification. The cross is necessary. It's necessary. And none of this is possible, as I've already said, unless what Christ, it is only made possible by what Christ did and who he was. You don't get the cross without the incarnation. There needs to be a God-man who lived a perfect life in order to be a perfect sacrifice. And that perfect sacrifice means nothing unless he raises from the dead to show that indeed he was sinless. Indeed, God's wrath was satisfied. The resurrection makes the crucifixion have meaning and purpose. 
And the resurrection means nothing without the ascension where Christ rises and, and ascends to the right hand of the Father and he sits down as high priest because the, the sacrifice is done. His work is done. He is sitting and he is ruling over his people. And that's not even enough because he hasn't come back. And if you read your paper or your digital doohickey lately, you've seen this world's a mess. And someday the consummation, he's going to come back and rule and reign. None of this is possible, though, unless God initiates the great exchange where Christ substitutes for us. It's the substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross that is absolutely necessary for our salvation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin in, on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're sinners. God gave his, our sin to him. He's righteous and God gives his righteousness to us. That's the great exchange. And out of a heart of love, the Father and the Son did this together. Sometimes we get the false idea that the cross is a mean, angry father abusing, cosmic abuse on his loving, unwilling son. But the reality is this. The cross was, the redemption was God's idea and it meant he had to give his only begotten son. And Jesus is not forced to do anything. He willingly and voluntarily on the cross, you see the love of the Father and the love of the Son for sinners like us. Jesus is the solid rock who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking stand. Christ alone. But how do sinners actually receive this gift that Christ accomplished? How does it come? Number three, through faith alone. It comes through faith alone. In fact, in this chapter, in the, in the passage that uh, Dane read for us, faith or believe is mentioned nine times. Nine times. Look just at verse 22. Even the righteousness of, uh, righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for who? For all those who believe. Look at verse 26. The demonstration, I say, of the righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of who? The one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Faith alone. We come with empty hands because we have nothing to bring. He is giving it by his hand through Christ, and we accept it. We look to the cross, and we, are, we see our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by the way, mere faith does not save us. It's faith. Christ saves us. Our faith doesn't save us. Christ saves us. And so faith is of no use if you don't have it in the right object and the right person. What makes your faith saving faith is that you are trusting with empty hands the one who has done it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people today that believe in a Jesus, but not the Jesus. And so we have to understand what our faith is in. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And how do we know for sure that this is God's way of saving sinners like us? Number four, according to Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura, according to Scripture alone. I think it's very interesting, look at verse 10, when Paul goes into this long explanation about how we're all sinners, he begins with Scripture, verse 10, as it is written. And then in verse 21, when he says, look, now God's grace is being manifested, he says, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It doesn't surprise me that when we go to 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul gives the most simplest summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ died for our sins. You know what it says, according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. So we've answered the first two questions. Raised by those who struggle with the scandal of the cross. Why was it necessary? Our condition, God's position, His compassion. How does the cross save sinners like us? According to Scripture alone, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what did God accomplish on the cross? Look at number three. What did God accomplish on the cross? Two things that were accomplished on the cross. And you're going to hear more about these good things in the weeks to come. So you want to keep coming to hear more. But just as an overview, God saved us for our good. Aren't you glad God saved us for our good? God means good to sinners like us. This just but loving God desires to do you good this morning. And if you don't know him this morning, you're missing out. You're missing out on your creator your Redeemer. He wants to do you good this morning. And you say, and yet how does he do these goods? Every good thing, every single good thing, and I mean every good thing, that God has ever done for his people by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, comes to us through Scripture alone. According to Scripture, it comes through the cross. It's all through the cross. You know what? As you read through this passage, you miss little phrases like, in his blood. In fact, as you read the New Testament, if you're not careful, you miss these little three-word phrases, in his blood, by his blood, through his blood. And so what you have in the handout, in your bulletin, is you have ten good things that God has done for you through the cross. And I put it as an insert because we're not going to go through all those, even though that clock has not been sprung forward yet. So I really have another hour, Kirk. But, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody would still be here by the time I'm done. But, uh, so I can't go through these. But here's what I want you to do. Look at these ten things. If you'll look up the verses of these ten good things that God does for us through the cross, you will find in every verse it's by his blood. It's through his death. I'm telling you, the cross is necessary for God to do us good, for him to welcome home aliens and strangers, for him to show mercy to rebels that are already under his wrath, for him to set free slaves enslaved to sin, for him to cancel sin debts that we owe, for him to reconcile to himself enemies who hate him even when he was dying for him. For him to justify and declare us right, those of us who are worthy of condemnation. To wash clean those with filthy, guilty hearts. To raise to new life those dead in their sin. To bless as new creations those who are cursed under the old creation. For him to enjoy an eternal relationship with those who are eternally separated from him by their sin. It's all the goodness of God from the cross. Can you rejoice in that today? Man, that's glorious. But why did he do this? Why does he do this? Ultimately, it's for our good, but the greater goal is for his glory. God has saved us for his glory alone, and that's the fifth sola, soli deo gloria. God has done it all and because he's done it all, he gets all the glory. Amen? That's how it works. The one who does the work gets the glory. And what do we bring to our salvation? Our sin. And what does God bring? Everything. Everything. Listen, the cross is necessary for our good and for God's glory. What God has done on the cross for undeserving sinners like me and like you gives him all the glory God all the glory because he has no because we have no reason to boast. Look again at verses 26 and 27. Look at these verses. Romans 3:26 and 27. So that God would be just 
delivering wrath, and yet the justifier of sinners, of the one who has faith in Jesus, where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, because our works are all tainted by sin. No, but the law of faith in my hand, nothing I bring. God gets all the glory. We don't have anything to boast in except the cross. Amen? We don't have anything to boast in except the glory and the grace of God the Father in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the cross today and see that everything you see is God's doing by His grace in His Son through faith that He enables us to exercise. In other words, there's only one reason and one reason only that explains why anyone is saved. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31 that says this, Let no man, that no man may boast before God, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, he's everything. And it's by God's doing. If you're today saved and born again, it's because of God's doing. By grace alone, through faith alone, in what Christ alone has done, according to Scripture alone. And so we've come full circle this morning. We're back at Galatians 6.14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so the greatest tragedy, <laughs> the greatest tragedy this morning would be for you to see the cross and yet not have God apply it to your life. Because just knowing these things, hearing these things, being encouraged by these things are not enough. The cross, the work of the cross, needs to be applied to your life today. And so two, two things I want to say to you this morning as way of application. Today, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you can become a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Those ten things in that handout can become instantly yours today if you will but empty your hands of self-reliance. Empty your hands of thinking that you're better than the other guy. Therefore, God's lucky to have you on his team. Empty yourself of any self-works, self-reliance, self-confidence. And just come as a broken person because that's what we all are. And so it says in 2 Corinthians, it's as though God is here this morning making this appeal to you. We urge you, we plead you with you as a church. For you, if you are separated from God, if you feel the weight of your sin, if your conscience is guilt-ridden and burdened, if you don't know for sure that if you would die today, you would enter into God's presence and be welcomed as his child and be declared innocent and perfectly right in his sight, you can have all that today, but you have to, place by faith, receive the gift of who Christ is. And we want to help you with that. And so mark that on that connection card. Or you can do it right now. You can just say, God, I, I, I turn from all of my self-reliance and I come to you. But the second thing is, today, if you're new creations in Christ, we should live. We should live for Him in light of all He's done for us. Listen to 2 Corinthians again. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So you have there in your notes some next steps. Now listen, I want, you, I want to be very clear that living as a new creation, if you have stepped across from unbelief to belief, from darkness to light, you've received that free gift with empty hands of faith, you acknowledge that God, by His doing, can save you through His Son. If you've done that, there's all sorts of next steps you ought to be doing this week. And not all of them are centered on our church and our ministry. But I do want you to understand 
that we are a community of blood-bought believers, amen? And we're entering into the Easter season where this message, the likelihood of people coming to hear this message in the next four weeks is greater than any other time of the year. And so I would challenge you, if you've received this message, come help us fill eggs so we can show the love of Christ to our community. Come serve at the extravaganza and show the love of Christ as a free gift to our community. Invite people to the Easter service. People are more likely to come any time of year is this Sunday. Here's your invite. Here's your invite. And if you're not a member yet of LifeBridge, we would love for you to take No 101, Discovering Church Membership. Isn't it great what God has done for us? And he didn't do it so we could sit sour and soak. He did it so that we could live as new creations and share the good news with a world that is condemned, guilty, wrath of God, on them just like you and I were at one time and yet someone came to us amen let's go to the Lord in prayer father we come and uh, as we have our response time I pray that you your spirit your word have moved in our hearts I pray that we have seen again the greatness of your holiness the depths of our sinfulness and the utter compassion of how you have provided a way for you to be both just and forgiving. And Father, it's all because the cross, the cross, the blood bought salvation of your son. And so I pray that decisions would be made to trust you today. And I pray those of us that know you would recommit and rededicate and, and renew by your grace, living as new creations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's do business with God as they sing.